It's good to be together to worship God. And we hear some words from Psalm 91. Whoever goes to the Lord for safety, whoever remains under the protection of the Almighty, can say of him, You are my defender and protector. You are my God. In you I trust. God will keep you safe from all hidden dangers and from all deadly diseases. He will cover you with his wings. You will be safe in his care. His faithfulness will protect and defend you. And so let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. In the stillness of this place, in the quiet of this moment, we worship you, God of eternity. In the singing of our songs, in the reading of scripture, we worship you, God of eternity. In the thoughts we will think, in the words we will hear, we worship you, God of eternity. In the music to which we listen, in the fellowship we will share, we worship you, God of eternity. In the energy of youth, in the wisdom of age, we worship you, God of eternity. In all we are, in all we do, may we truly worship you, God of all eternity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning's readings are all from Mark chapter 16, starting from verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went, but they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I think most of us were here last week, but not everybody. Last week we began a four-week series looking at the ends of the four Gospels. We have Easter story and then we go on from there. Last week we looked at the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John, 
and the widely accepted idea that there must have been two editions of that gospel. The first one that ended at the end of chapter 20, and then later a second edition ending at chapter 21. And we asked ourselves a set of questions. Why did the writer of the gospel end the story the way they did? What difference would it make for us if that was the only gospel that we had, which would have been the case for most of the early Christians in the first couple of centuries? And then what difference does this ending make for our own lives of faith and discipleship? We thought about the idea of believing without seeing, about faith and doubt, and about the very personal call of Christ on each person's life. And we left Jesus and Peter walking off along a beach into the distance. You see, if we only had John's gospel, there is no ascension story. Jesus just fades away into the distance, walking off with Peter. This week, we're turning our attention to the gospel of Mark. It felt like an appropriate one for Low Sunday, but it is also the other one that's actually remarkably complicated. And we're going to ask ourselves the same questions. Now, the biblical scholars among you, and there are a few, will know that the Gospel of Mark exists in at least four early versions that are accepted as authentic, with three different endings occurring in different combinations. In fact, if you've got a good news Bible, which some of you have, you will find them all laid out for you. What we're going to do today is to look at each of these endings in turn and spending a little bit of time thinking, well, what could we discover if that is where the story finishes up? And so we begin with what we've just heard, the final part of Mark that everybody accepts as original. Verses 1 to 8. Now that's a very strange way to tell the story. It stops very abruptly with terrified women fleeing from the tomb and saying nothing to anybody despite a very clear instruction from the young man dressed in white to go and tell the disciples and specifically to tell Peter that Jesus was going on ahead of them into Galilee. It's a strange ending in English, but I know there are clever people here who read Greek. And in Greek, the ending is even more bewildering because the last word of the Gospel of Mark is gar, which translates roughly as for or because. Now, it's not completely unheard of for a Greek sentence to end in the word gar, but it's very unusual. And it's pretty much without parallel as the last word of a book. Rather than translating the verse as, the women said nothing because they were afraid, it might be more accurate as the Pelican Pelican commentary, which is a really old one, suggests to say, The women said nothing. They were afraid, you see. Or as most more recent scholars suggest, it ends, the women said nothing. They were afraid because... Stop.
stops in midair. It seems that we have an unfinished gospel or a gospel that has lost its ending or a gospel that employs an incredibly sophisticated literary device, very unusual in the first century. And as you can imagine, there are all sorts of theories about this. One theory is that the author fell ill or died, and the gospel, as far as it had been written, was copied out and circulated. But surely to goodness, if that had been the case, somebody would have tidied up that last sentence, wouldn't they? Another more plausible theory is that the original gospel like any book that is used very well, became tatty, and the last bit was lost. And just nobody knows how it finished. Well, that seems kind of strange, but it is possible. Or the third theory is that even though the person who wrote Mark's Gospel has Greek that's almost as bad as mine, and even though... It's quite simple in its structure elsewhere. It was a deliberate ploy to leave everybody hanging and wondering just what happened next. Nobody knows for certain the truth of how come the version of Mark that everybody accepts stops so abruptly. But it is for certain that for most of the people in the first century, that is all they would have had. So suppose that was all that we had. What kind of Easter story would we be left with? One of the things we perhaps don't necessarily realise, and I had to be reminded of it this week, is it's only two Gospels, Mark and John, that refer directly to the tomb as being empty. If you go away and do your homework, you'll find that that's true. There are hints at it in other Gospels, but only those two say it specifically. In Mark's story, we have three women going to the tomb to complete the burial rituals and wondering, who's going to roll away this very large stone? Mark's not known for his use of adjectives, so very large stone kind of stands out in Mark. And as they get there, a young man in white addresses them. They are terrified, they run away and say nothing. The end. So if all we had was Mark, then there are no resurrection appearances. Just this mysterious promise that Jesus goes ahead of us, not to Jerusalem, but to Galilee, back to where the story began. There's no mention of ascension. The last time Jesus is seen is at his burial. So if this is where the gospel ends, whether that's what was intended or whether it's because the original ending got lost, we should be left wondering, what happens next? And perhaps we are invited to join in the story. But wait, let's not rush away from that picture just yet. Just for a moment... Let's stand with those women. Let us encounter with them this incredible scene and hear the message spoken to us.
let us recognize our own fears and anxieties about responding to that command to pass on the message. What will we do? Will we just run away and hide and not say anything to anybody? Or will we take our part and carry on the story? Now after he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went out and told those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After this, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Later, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were sitting at the table, and he upbraided them for their lack of faith and stubbornness because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, and the one who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. By using my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes in their hands, and if they drink any deadly thing it will not hurt them, they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and proclaimed the good news everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that accompanied it. Whatever the reason that Mark's gospel ended so abruptly, they said nothing because... Within a generation, attempts have been made to tidy it up. Most of the scholars I've looked at, of all theological hues, concur that the so-called longer ending of Mark, which we've just heard read for us, was a second-century edition, written by somebody other than the original author, and most probably post-dating the writing and accepting of Matthew, Luke Acts, and John, from which it quite clearly draws. It's a really odd piece of writing. It goes back to the start of Easter Sunday, as if the previous eight verses just didn't exist. Maybe it was intended to replace that last chapter. Who knows? Instead of three women, we now have just one, Mary Magdalene. And instead of fear and silence we have a message passed on to grieving disciples. Instead of no resurrection appearances, we have a whole catalogue of those recorded in the other Gospels. A hint at the Emmaus Road story, the appearance of Jesus to the Eleven, a clear echo of the Great Commission, and even a foretelling of Pentecost. Oh, and those very strange references to drinking poison and being bitten by snakes without coming to any harm. Interesting that that verse has never found any widespread acceptance in Christian circles. But there we go. It's there in the longer ending of Mark. And then Jesus ascends to heaven. 
You can't fail to notice the join. Whoever joined it together didn't do a very good job of papering over the cracks. Editorially, it is a very different kind of writing. The, the connection is clumsy, no doubt about that. And yet, do you know what? As I've read it this week, it struck me it illustrates just what we all do all the time without thinking about it. Because we have the whole of the Bible as it was agreed in the 4th century, so around 300 years after all the events happened, because we have that, what we tend to do is to make one story out of a whole collection of stories. And when we get a contradiction or a difference, we just kind of sweep it under the carpet and pretend it's not there. The original ending of Mark is very clear. Jesus is going to Galilee, and that is where the disciples will meet him. But the other three Gospels have resurrection appearances in or around Jerusalem. Hmm. The person who wrote the extra material very carefully omitted any precise locations. And I have a sneaky suspicion that we also do something similar when we have a reference in Mark 16, verse 1, to say that there were three women, and then in this longer end reading to say there was one woman. Perhaps in our imagination, we have the three of them running away, and then Mary Magdalene comes back on her own. And maybe that did happen. And maybe it didn't. We will never know. The second century writer wants to make the whole story make sense, to fit together tidily, and that's very laudable, I think. But it isn't necessarily that useful for us, is it? It was great for those first century people who wanted a tidy gospel, and I think we sometimes want a tidy gospel, but perhaps what that does is take away any possibility of mystery we're dealing with our own fear of ambiguity and uncertainty. We shy away from questions that Scripture raises for us if we actually read what it says rather than what we think it says. You see, I think this ending of Mark's Gospel illustrates some of the challenges we face when we read Scripture listening for God's voice speaking to us. I think there are two extreme ways we can do this when we come to read scripture, and actually neither of them ultimately is helpful or healthy. One way to do it is to look at it, you see the differences, and you say, well, clearly then, it's unreliable. Surely, to goodness, it ought to agree exactly on the precise issues like the resurrection. There might be people here who think that. Let me tell you a story. I don't do stories very often, but there we go. When I was in Manchester, I was involved in doing some undergraduate teaching on contextual theology. And we were using, as one of our resources, some literature by an African called Chinua Achebe. We were using the book Things Fall Apart, which some of you may know. 
And I was researching some biographical information on this man to introduce him. And I discovered he went to University X and studied Y. And he went to University Z and studied W. And he was born in this year, and he was born in that year. And I was thinking, hang on a minute, this is the 20th century. This is the internet. We have all this information. Surely, to goodness, we know exactly what this man's story was. seemed quite useful then when I went back to the Gospels to recognise that of course there will be differences because different people find their information from different eyewitnesses, people remember it differently, they've got different aims in what they're writing down. We need to remember that the Gospels were written down not as a newspaper, not as a biography in a 21st century understanding, not as history as it's been understood since the Enlightenment, but actually for a kind of theological purpose. We have to be careful that our desire for scientific reliability can overshadow our openness to the timeless truths that these stories tell us, even with that ambiguity. That's one extreme to say it's unreliable, so it can't be right. The other extreme is this desperate attempt to draw it all together into a homogenized whole and say, that's the truth. That is the one true, clear meaning of it all. We seem to be actually quite happy to live with the fact that all the gospel writers tell their story in a different order. If you lay them down side by side, you'll find... There's quite a lot of variation. But when it comes to Easter, and when it comes to Christmas, we want it nice and tidy. The two really obvious examples of this. One is the nativity story, which takes Luke's shepherds, Matthew's magi, and lands them up in a nice glittery stable on the same day. It's not actually what the Bible says, but it works, And it has meaning. Don't get me wrong. We can find truth through that. But it's not actually what the Bible says. And the other one is the seven sayings of the Saviour from the cross, which I think is beautiful. I remember trying to preach on it once and tying myself into terrible knots, trying to work out what the right order was. Because they're not in one gospel. They're scattered through the four gospels. The conflated story can be very convenient and it has its place and yes, I'm sure God can speak through it. Actually, if we try to make it too smooth, then we limit what God can say to us through those stories. Each gospel is included in the Bible because it has a unique message. Mark's message is subtly different from John's or Matthew's or Luke's. So we have to be careful not to try and smooth it all out and lose what God is really saying to us. But I wonder how you feel about this second ending to the gospel. Does it trouble you that I'm suggesting it might have been added on later? The historical evidence supports that, but maybe that troubles you. Does it unsettle your own understanding of the Bible to say, look, that bit differs from that bit? 
Do you prefer it all neat and tidy? Is it frightening to think that God might want to show you something new? So what are you going to do? Are you going to run away from what you've heard and stay with your old view, whatever that might have been, and miss the opportunity for something new to be spoken to you through this story? Or will you step forward, maybe a little warily, to try and make a bit more sense of this complex gospel, this mysterious and wonderful canon of scripture through which God continues to speak to us? And all that had been commanded them, they they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterwards, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. This third ending to the gospel is sometimes offered instead of the longer ending, sometimes offered as well as the longer ending, and just to confuse us, in either order. Again, the scholars agree it wasn't original, but it was a later attempt to tidy up the gospel which ends so abruptly. Editorially, it's a much neater ending than the long one, although there is still a bit of a hiatus between the original verse 8 and the new verse 9. So... They went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And all that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterwards, Jesus himself sent out through them, from east to west, the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Despite their original fear, The women have a change of heart and do, after all, go to see Peter and the others. There is an allusion to post-resurrection appearances, though here, no ascension story again. And the disciples headed off east and west to proclaim the gospel. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? It fits with what we piece together from the gospels that we have. But it would also have made sense to early believers who would have heard how the story of Jesus came to their little community of faith. The church in Corinth, the church in Rome, the church in Ephesus, the church of which Mark had been a part at some time. They knew that the story carried on because they had heard it. If you want a neat ending to that gospel, then maybe that's the one for you. Linguistically, it is incredibly elegant, and it's quite inspiring. After a day of near failure on the day of resurrection, we have the disciples who have heard Jesus' command and obeyed it. The imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation has been achieved. I love that phrase, imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. That's been achieved, or has it? We can wrap up that Easter story as tidily as we like, but when we look around us, there is still plenty to concern us in the world. 
The good news of Jesus has not yet reached, let alone transformed the whole world. The story is not yet finished. If we try and make the story too tidy, we deny the reality. The work of Bible translation continues. There are languages that still do not have a full Bible written in them. The work of mission agencies continues. The gospel task of overcoming injustice and poverty and disease continues. We can't just say, Amen, sit back and relax. So if we go back to those questions with which we started, if we only had Mark's gospel, and if we could only have one of those three endings, which one would you choose and why? What do we gain from a story that ends with terrified women fleeing because... What do we learn from a summary of post-resurrection appearances all drawn together in one place? And what challenges are inferred from Jesus sending via Peter and others the message of eternal salvation? What is it that God is saying to you or to us? And how do we or you respond in fear and silence or some other way. Uh, We bring our prayers of intercession. Remembering that in this world there's still lots of fear. But many people do not have any hope at all. Hugh Owen Parry writes in his little book, Basis of Christian Prayer. Through intercession, we see people not in relation to ourselves and to the ways in which they satisfy our needs, but as they are in themselves, objects of God's love. This perception of them increases our sensitivity to their uniqueness as individuals, their circumstances, and their claims upon us. And this new sensitivity leads to action. Heavenly Father, we sometimes wonder, why are we doing this? What good does it do? We're not trying to tell you what is going on in the world or of the needs of needy people. You already know. We're not trying to persuade or remind you to act on behalf of the poor and the needy or those living in terror. You're already doing it. We believe that one of the ways in which you act is in this very act of intercession, both by us here and all Christians throughout the world. We do it to align us with your will and tune our thoughts and actions to yours. So this morning, remembering the fear of the disciples or the women as they fled the empty tomb, as they met in the closed room, 
before they knew that Jesus' body had not been stolen or even destroyed, but that he was alive. We bring before you all those who are living in fear at this moment. So we pray for our nations in turmoil and fear of death and destruction. We pray for Syria, Palestine, Sudan, (coughs) Egypt, Libya, Niger, and those we now mention in our hearts before you. Hear our prayer and let their cry come unto thee. We pray for peoples who fear economic breakdown and hardship. People in Greece and Spain and Italy and Burma and also those we mention now in our hearts before you. Hear our prayer and let their cry come unto thee. We pray for people who live in fear of drought and famine, whether it be due to war or flood or earthquake or climate change, in the many places we mention now in our hearts before you. Hear our prayer and let their cry come unto thee. We pray for your church in places where our brothers and sisters in Christ face fear and persecution because of their faith, especially in Egypt and in parts of Nigeria and other places known only to them and to you. Heavenly Father, we find it hard enough to live our lives as we believe you would want us to without having to fear for our lives and our livelihood. Help us to support them by our prayers and giving in order that your kingdom should come on earth. Hear our prayer and let our cry come unto thee. In the name of Jesus, amen. Eternal God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, free us from fear and silence, anxiety and reluctance, and then send us out to proclaim the sacred and imperishable gospel of eternal salvation in all we do, all we say, and all we are, the glory of your holy name, now and always. Oh.